Hello and welcome to All Things STEM. I'm Dr. Frank Gomez. Here we highlight exemplars of the 23 campus California State University CSU system. Today on our show, I'll be chatting with Dr. Leticia Leti Marquez Magana, professor of biology at San Francisco State University, where she is director of the Health Equity Research Her Laboratory and is the lead principal investigator PI for the NIH funded BUILD program. We'll discuss her various roles on campus and her impact on students. In her role as the director of the Health Equity Research Lab, she's part of transdisciplinary research teams studying the biological, psychosocial, and political causes of health disparities in the United States. These research teams include student trainings from the same communities as the participants. Students are mentored to become agents of change who promote the inclusive practices necessary to bring about equity in scientific research. In her role as lead PI for the SF Build program, she helps transform science environments into affirming and inclusive spaces. In recognition of these efforts, she received the Excellence in Professional Achievement Award from SF State and was recognized at their 2020 state convocation. Letty has been professor at SF State for over 26 years. I first met her over 30 years ago when we were both nearing the end of our graduate studies. It was apparent early on then that she was special and she was going to make a big difference in the lives of those who, for whatever reason, had not been given opportunities so many of us take for granted. She has literally been that angel to those less fortunate. Her passion is contagious, and her leadership in leading the charge to help the underserved, the less fortunate, and people of color is something we should all strive to replicate. She believes that investing in our CSU SEM students is investing in our future. I can't wait for you to hear from Letty. Letty, it's great to have you on as our first guest here on All Things STEM. I mean, really, I mean, remind me, has it really been that many years, Letty, that we've known each other? Yeah, I was thinking about that. And um, yeah, it was 1989 when we were both the graduate students selected to the second sport of education. And um, as I remember, we were selected on napkins that were passed around at the dinner <laughs> that year and everybody wrote in. And uh, yeah, we were, I think at that point, there was a, almost 50 graduate students. That was it. And that was the most it had ever been. And so um, now, it, in retrospect, it just, it seems so small, but it was so tight and so connected and so real. I sort of miss that. Yeah, I guess now when we look back at it, you know, that type of uh, family atmosphere, uh, although we uh, might strive for that time such a long time ago, it's great that it is, that our communities have grown to uh, to such a large extent now that uh, uh, that we can say that uh, we have representation all over the map now. And now we're, I guess, the mid-elders. I mean, there's definitely the elders, because <laughs> they're still here, a lot of them. And then, yeah, we were the youngsters. And it's such a trip that now we're the elders. Yeah, that is true. And, uh, you know, hopefully we could... Uh, you know, live as long as those that uh, that came before us, and uh, you know, we're walking in uh, in very big, uh, uh, you know, big footsteps. If you know what I mean. Yeah, we're standing on their shoulders for sure. That's true. Well, you know, it's great to have you. We have a, a number of questions, and you know, it's great to, like I said, it's great to have you on. 
as our first guest. Uh, I'm uh, I'm very honored to have that. So the Build program is an initiative of the uh, National Institutes of Health, and it's uh, great that you're the PI. I mean, what better person than you to be the PI for such a uh, what such a wonderful program? You know, tell me a little bit about the program. So uh, the Build the National Build program. The overall mission is to enhance diversity of the biomedical research workforce. And it's funded out of the Common Fund, so it's a trans-NIH activity. And the fact that it's coming out of the Common Fund really showcases, um, at least you know, when it got started, the importance of the work, which I think has only grown. And the overall goal of the, you know, as I said, is to enhance diversity of the biomedical research workforce. But we want to do it from a scientific perspective by testing different interventions and seeing what works for whom and in what context. And so there are 10 build sites. Uh, San Francisco State with University of California, San Francisco is one of those sites. Um, the other nine are testing different interventions, and three of those include uh, CSU at CSU Northridge, Cal State uh, Long Beach, and us. So Three of the 10 are in the CSU, which I think really speaks to the importance of the CSU in changing and transforming science in a way that uh, leads to equity and social justice. And so um, in terms of our site, the partner San Francisco State to UCSF, uh, we really wanted to test uh, the hypothesis or the, yeah, the hypothesis that it's not the students that are the problem. You know, of, you know, students definitely, uh, your introduction said that they were less fortunate. You know, I actually think disadvantage is advantage. I think that many of us who had, quote unquote, less fortunate backgrounds have the skills and the knowledges to really um, be resilient and resourceful and committed and all those great things that come with overcoming adversity. In any case, um, many of the student training programs, as you know, have focused on the presumed deficits of the students. Uh, they don't have enough mentors, they don't have enough money, they don't have you know, uh, good educational backgrounds, and all of that may be true, and it is true for many of us, uh, but uh, we decided to focus on institutional transformation. How do we fix the institution? How do we improve it to better recruit and retain the students so that they actually are uh, in STEM fields where they're feeling that not, they not only belong, but that they're necessary, that they're required to advance science in a way that is uh, equitable, that is um, that allows all individuals to benefit. And I was thinking about it this morning, and I think that uh, our overall, the way we've moved within SF Build is that by, including, by increasing the inclusiveness of our workforce, uh, we will increase inclusion of all populations in the benefits of science. As we know, and what has really been uncovered by the COVID disparities, not all of us get a fair shake, you know, fair share of the products of science. And that includes medicines, that includes uh, culturally tailored or culturally relevant, I think culturally relevant is a better word, um, interventions, but it's also the social mobility. Science is something that allows folks to, to earn a good wage. And um, that is something that is not readily available to many of us. And I often think about the fact that I'm a typical Californian. I'm a Latina. Anytime I go any place and there's not the majority Latinas, I'm like, okay, what's going on here? <laughs> there's some, there's, there's some barriers here because if it was just permeable, you know, and, and no it, it, diffusion, whatever, I don't know. Um, thinking back to my scientific 
concepts, then there would be Latinas in the majority in every environment I go into. And that is rarely the case um, unless I'm in, you know, uh, and I'll just, you know, it, unless it's, I'm, I'm talking, you know, speaking to the custodial staff at San Francisco State or um, not even the secretarial or you know, the administrative pool, the administrative pool. Anyway, before I go off on too much of a tangent, um, I just wanted to say that, yeah, we want to increase the inclusion of all folks in the workforce so that we can, um, so that all folks can get the benefits of science, which includes not only the medicines and the interventions and the practices and all that sort, but also the social mobility, the ability to earn good wages for ourselves and for our families. That's great, Letty. And I, I assume that pretty much sums up your motivation for applying for the bill grant then, correct? Um, I think it's a, that's the motivation that I've grown into. Um, I think at the beginning, I was really frustrated by the fact that many student training programs or programs focused on in, uh, in enhancing diversity of the biomedical research workforce uh, were led by what I consider outsiders. Um, so they were individuals who were not historically underrepresented in the sciences. And my perspective was that that limited the way they saw the students um, and in some cases caused harm, real harm to the students. And so my motivation was to gather uh, those of us at San Francisco State were who were historically underrepresented in the sciences to think about uh, what worked for us, what didn't work, and how we could change the environment so that our own students, who many of us consider, you know, our professional kids, didn't have to go through the hardships that we had to go through. Great. Thanks, Letty. So, you know, tell me a little bit about how this has made a big difference in the lives of SF State students. So the, the, the great thing about San Francisco State is that we have a legacy of change, of, of uh, pushing national change. So as you know, in 1968, 69, there was actually a six month strike that was student led at San Francisco State to uh, increase in, uh, multiculturalism or to make sure that people of color were included in the curriculum, in the faculty, in the content of what was being taught. And the students, um, were organizers. They were agents of change. They were folks that worked with the staff, with the faculty, with the community to really bring about national level uh, advances in how we think about uh, academia. And we still have a long ways to go, but they, they made big changes. And in the end, um, they had, they, they, what they were able to successfully do is to move higher education uh, into education that's by, with, and for people of color. And so I think that was really something that um, promoted a lot of change in the social sciences. And I think what happened through SF Build is that we started, began to focus on STEM, which I think has been uh, a field that uh, has been resistant to change. And I think that's because of the pioneers who uh, we celebrate in the sciences who, you know, instead of celebrating the Aztecas who were amazing mathematicians and astrophysicists or the Polynesians that were amazing, um, you know, seer of the stars and, you know, maker of beautiful, you know, amazing ships that navigated the oceans that we still can't do. Who do we celebrate? It's a lot of folks that uh, 
that are the forefathers, I guess, of our country. Um, but it's hard to anyway. So what we did is we tried to bring back uh, some of that, bring back some of that activism that came out in 68, 69, so that science is by, with, and for people of color. And so when you say, what has it done for the students? I think for the STEM students in particular, it's connected them to the legacy, the legacy of SF State, which is to really be a place, a space. You know, it's hard to explain, but you know when you're on SF State campus that there's controversy, there's conflict, there's there's a lot. But there's also this underneath, you know, we need to make change in order to uh, achieve what we, we really know we can achieve through true inclusion. I always look up to someone like you who does not shy away from, uh, from the battles, knowing that it's certainly for a, a good cause, for a great cause. And... I'm, I'm sure that that resonates with all the students there and the great opportunities that the BUILD program and other programs that you've led, led over the past 26 years. Um, you know, given your, your strong science and research background, you know the importance of, of research and, you know, 26-year history and who, hopefully many more years there'll be a legacy that, uh, that Marquez Magana will leave uh, and hopefully not for a while. Um, you know, tell us a little bit, uh, given you know, how long you've been there, the importance of research and how it's impacted students there. But not only looking at it from the SF State perspective, but your view on the importance of research uh, in STEM at your institution and the CSU as a whole. Um, you know, what's what's your thoughts on that? So I'll answer that question, but you made me sound like, you know, let the you, you know, you're so quick to the battle. Um, it's in some ways it's very self-serving. I need to sleep at night. And what I found is that if if I say what needs to be said, at least from my perspective, I can sleep at night. If I stay quiet, I mean, and I'm gonna start tearing up, if I stay quiet. I can't sleep at night, and it's too important to me to sleep. So just, just it's not that I go into battle, you know, it's like, oh, this is something I want to do. It was something that uh, because of my lens of seeing the disadvantages and the skills that I gained through going through them, understanding that fighting those battles means that other folks who have gone through similar uh, training can really make a difference. And so how can you make a difference? Um, research is really about truth-telling, right? And I think that we all know that the scientific method says you have a hypothesis and you test that hypothesis and you either support it or you disapprove it. I think that oftentimes uh, folks use their confirmation bias to um, support hypotheses that they're really wedded to. So for example, you know, in eugenics, a lot of the early scientists and population genetics had a lot of data that they gathered that um, folks with black skin were inferior in a bunch of ways. And that was pseudoscience. So it's really important to learn the practice of science 
in a way that is truth telling, that has reliability, that is reliable, that is valid, that is generalizable. And um, I think that it's important that students gain those skills because they're important critical thinking skills, especially in our society where there's just so much information out there. I did a study one time where I asked students what, you know, what was a, you know, what was a hypothesis? And they said, oh, an educated guess. And I'm like, yeah, I've heard that, you know, we hear that all. And then I said, what does that mean? And they're like, well, I'm educated so I can guess. I'm like, no, (laughs) that's no. you, you know, you need to read the literature, you need to think about things, but I think what's really important, and this is where the CSU can be set apart, is we listen to listen to community. So um, like you, I came from ivory tower institutions. Um, my undergrad institution was Stanford, my PhD was at Berkeley, and then I completed my postdoc at Stanford Medical Center. And when I look back at the research that's done there, it's very ivory tower. It's well-resourced, um, but it's very, in my mind, disconnected by what so- from what society needs. And I think that's become really clear with the pandemic and the switching of some ivory tower labs to actually become uh, centers for developing the diagnostics and developing some of the data science tools to better understand. People are now switching. But at San Francisco State and at many of the campuses in the CSU, we've always known our connection to community and the importance of solving questions that are important to our communities as a way to train our students and to be very socially relevant. And so I think of um, the role of science at San Francisco State is, uh, you know, it's a spectrum. It's to train some of our students in ivory tower kind of research so that they can go on and uh, earn livings for themselves and for their family and become part of the industries that use some of the technology and some of those skills and knowledges. But I think that um, it can move towards a place where we actually are solving questions for our communities. That's the CSU is, is the gold of the Sierra Madres. I mean, we, we are the, we are the average person doing, I don't know if I want to say, yeah, the typical person, the typical person who really has a connection to both what's going on in our communities and to the learning um, that's often only entrusted to few privileged, the privileged few, you know, who are in these ivory tower institutions. Um, you don't need to be in an ivory tower institution to solve scientific questions that are important to solve. You know, kind of continuing on, uh, on, on that road, what has been the impact of research at institutions like uh, uh, at SF State and how has it and will it in the future impact the workforce of California? And certainly it's something that kind of hits home even more so now due to the pandemic and, and what it's going to look like in, 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 the fu- in, you know, in years to come. I mean, what's your, what's your lens on that? Well, one thing that's always struck me is that we have the advantage of nothing. And that sounds like, oh my gosh, how can you have an advantage of nothing? When I was at Stanford, they wanted to do trans, interdis- transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary. I don't know which one of those words they were using that was going to put together folks in biology and bioinformatics and computers, you know, computational sciences. But there was all these turf wars <laughs> because each of them had their own siloed infrastructure. And so they had to tear it down before they could come together. In San Francisco State, we have the advantage of nothing. We don't have to tear anything down. We just, we just start fresh. 
And uh, if we have like-minded folks who are all on this, you know, have vectors that can be all curved to go in the same direction, we can get a, a cyclone going. And so I think that one of the, so that's one of the ways that the CSUs, I think, can, can really, are more flexible. And we're also, we're less ego-based. <laughs> you know, I saw so much ego-based science going on at the play institutions where I trained. Some of those conferences I've been to, and I was just, you know, and I've seen a lot of the collateral damage of students who weren't able to support the primary hypothesis of their PI because it was wrong. Um, so we, we didn't, we're not ego-based. We're really, many of us are really committed to solving questions that are important because they, they need to be solved. And so I think that the CSU, um, we can be more socially relevant. And because we have folks who come from those communities, who are insiders, who really understand how lead in their community affects some of the behaviors they see in their communities, you know, the, the crime, the, you know, that, anyway, there's so many things that we understand because we come from those communities and because we have linguistic capabilities and social capital that can act, allow us to connect to those communities, we can be more rigorous and we can be more impactful. You know, I, I've been to, for example, health disparity conferences where I hear, you know, outsiders talking about the Latino community and saying, this is the data that we gathered and this is the conclusions that we came up with. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> that is, no, that, no, you, you miss some nuances there. Um, and, and it's, this is, this is uh, just a quick story. This not, hasn't to do with the culture part of it, but I remember being at a breast cancer conference and everyone that spoke didn't have breasts. They were all men. <laughs> and I kept thinking to myself, how can you really have an authentic perspective on breast cancer if you don't even have breasts? That's how I sometimes feel in some of this, the research that gets done that's supposed to be solving socially relevant issues is, you know, anyway, no me cabe en la cabeza, which means it doesn't fit in my head. I'm just like, <laughs> we need some authentic perspective. It doesn't mean that the team has to be all insiders. Of course, you need, you need, you know, but you have to have some folks uh, just to say, you know, I'm on the PCAP for UCSF, the P Patient Community Advisory Board. And there was a, there was a proposal to how do we go into the mission district to gather more um, biospecimens and information about what's going on there in terms of the pandemic. And one of the community members asked, well, do you have a Spanish, Spanish interpreter? And the answer was something to the effect, we don't have a budget for that. And I'm like, no me cabe en la cabeza. I mean, <laughs> they have a budget for the biostatistician that's going to do all the analyses, but you know, if you don't get the data, anyway, you see where I'm going with this. In the CSU, we have folks who are very connected to our, to, to our social structures. And so uh, we can do science that's more socially relevant, more rigorous, and more impactful because the information could be taken back in a way that's understandable to our communities. So with this uh, advantage of nothing, uh, perhaps you can, uh, you can patent that. How can we uh, continue to impact our students positively and you know, move them along in the right direction uh, towards success in STEM fields, Letty? So uh, I think this comes from our SF Build theory of change. You know, I think uh, in Build, as you know, Build is a 10-year grant. Our first five years are really focused on better understanding some of the barriers and 
we focus on stereotype threat and how to increase understanding of how uh, being stereotyped as, a, as someone who is not able to do science um, really causes underperformance. I mean, that's, that's obvious, right? But when we started the work, uh, stereotype threat was not something that was easily, you know, rolled off the tongues of most science educators. We also looked at the role of giving back um, because many of us, um, I'd be an advisor and students would come and I'd say, you know, why are you in science? And they would often say to give back, to give back to my communities. But I don't see how to do that through the curriculum. I don't see how to do that with the research. There was no direct connection. And so now moving into build two, we have increased more of that. And I think that that's really a, a step in listening to our students and why they're in our institutions. Many of them are there because they want to give back to those communities that did support them, you know, through a lot of the things that they've gone through. Um, and we need to provide those kinds of opportunities. I think the other thing that um, we can do is to better value the assets that they bring with them. I have heard from so many students, you know, it, basically they say, uh, I speak two languages and that makes it really hard for me to, to write really well in English or to really, you know, uh, uh, speak, you know, communicate, in, in, you know, scientifically. So it's always, it's a deficit. And I said, wait, wait, you speak, two languages. Most folks only speak one. <laughs> you have an asset that, that is going to allow you to really move science in a way that others can't, that don't speak those two languages. And they also have, you have two cultural understandings. And when I get at the root of it, their education, general education and STEM education has caused them to feel that they're at a deficit because they have more knowledge. I'm like, no me cabe en la cabeza. You know, I'm like, what we can do is tell these students, you have value, inherent value, because of the fact that you not only speak two languages, but you know how to navigate in both worlds. Uh, you have overcome so many systemic barriers, so you have that navigational capital. I think what we need to do is stop talking about our students as less fortunate, stop talking about our students as needing all this and recognize that they are able to do so much more because of what they've overcome and because of what they've done. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm constantly astonished by what our students can do. And I think to myself, gosh, I've been on faculty with these individuals for a very long time. I'd like to see them in those environments. You know, because my hypothesis is that they would not succeed in the same way that our students succeed. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, too often we see, um, not us personally, but too often we have seen people, you know, our colleagues uh, look at our students uh, more in the deficit model framework mm -hmm. than, uh, you know, the glass half full. I even look at it as three quarters full uh, compared to others. You know, they come with a lot more than what sometimes a, a, you know, an average student comes because of their ability, as you say, to, to navigate in, in two different worlds, need, need for better uh, word. 
you know, it brings me to uh, an area that you know both you and I uh, I have you know a lot of passion for is in hiring of mm-hmm. of faculty faculty of color and how they play a huge role in uh, the education of uh, our very uh, demographically mixed, need for better words, clientele, our students, and just the the inherent, uh, you know, family type of setting we see, you know, at least I saw, I'm sure you saw too, if we saw somebody that looked like us up there at the, you know, what used to be a blackboard, but now it's a whiteboard and whatever, and how we had some sort of affinity with them. Um, so, you know, tell, you know, tell me a little bit about, you know, your views on, or, or what, you, what you've done, you know, your activity and your, your passion for hiring a faculty of color and how it affects students' rates of graduation, their success, and their level of income, you know, kind of, you know, long-term effects of, of having these, the, the diverse faculty in our CSU and how it really is a positive. Yeah. Um, so what I've heard, and this is not my quote, you cannot be what you cannot see. And so just seeing us, you know, as you said, in the front of the classroom causes some students to understand that they can be a professor as well. The students are savvy, though. They've seen that many hiring committees have brought in students, you know, faculty, faculty, candidates of color, and then haven't hired them. So that's a message that they're getting, too. And so we have to we have to fix that because otherwise we're going to be losing students um, who uh, see that others have not been hired. And so um, they need to. We, we can't we need if we want our students to, to apply, we're going to we need to begin to hire now. Uh, I know that there was the one and only uh, minority conference at Stanford University of Minority Alumni. And I sat with the board of trustees person who talked about um, how myself as an alumnus, because I was just down the street, I could come and talk to the students at Stanford to give them a role model in STEM. And I'm like, you can't import (laughs) that way. That does not work. It has to be authentic. Um, and And I'm having a real hard time with the educational apartheid. And I think that many of us you know, when I was when I was on campus at Stanford, we we protested the apartheid that we saw happening in South Africa. What I don't understand is that that generation is the folks that are promoting educational apartheid in the CSU. They were, I mean, I you know how how do you not see that compositional representation matters? Uh, if it was wrong in South Africa, where the leaders were all white and the the, the you know the folks were of color then how can you not see that it's wrong in the CSU? The other thing that I've you know, thought about, and this is, again, not from me, but from a colleague, Kalecha Wazoki, is that people say that equity is being invited to the, to the dinner. Um, you know, diversity, well, that's diversity. Equity is being invited to sit down. What she talks about is that inclusion is being able to decide what's on the menu and what's the music that's playing. Well, that's driven by the faculty. And so in my classrooms, sometimes we speak Spanish. I know that that's exclusionary to those who don't speak Spanish. So I make sure to translate, but 
we have closing activities where we make tacos. I bring comales and, you know, sometimes what's inside of the tacos is a uh, 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 Sichuan eggplant, <laughs> but, you know, we all mix it up. But it just, and the music is all over. It's just, folks feel included. And I think that, you know, la cultura cura, which means culture cures, many of our higher education systems are toxic to students. And we've done some research around this. And so we need to make sure that the culture is inclusive. But how can you do that if you don't, if, you know, the culture that's represented is the culture of, you know, the, the coming minority? Well, actually, it's actually already, it's already done, right? In California, yeah. So, you know, uh, yeah, students, so that increases their persistence. But more than that, um, seeing themselves in their faculty uh, gives them the confidence. And I think also that then once those individuals are in the workforce, they can reach back and talk to professors that they've had this kind of connection to, to really connect all of our uh, institutions in California to better serve all of the members that comprise Californian society. Thanks, Letty. Uh, I, I know you've addressed some of this already, but uh, uh, perhaps you can you know, comment a little bit more. Um, you know, we've been both been in the CSU for quite a long time. Yeah. Um, but certainly it's a different, uh, you know, it's, you know, we're different. It's different than uh, many other systems. But how is it more socially relevant, and how it pe- how can it become even more socially relevant? And certainly, due to the times we're living in now. So, in terms of California, it's more socially relevant because our students are actually members of the surrounding communities. I know that when I was an undergrad, um, you know, I went from Sacramento, California, to uh, Palo Alto, so two hours away, but I didn't have any local connections. Um, and neither did most of the folks on my campus. Most CSU campuses, I mean, we have a lot of folks at San Francisco State that come up from uh, from your area, from Los Angeles, and we do have folks, but they they go home. They, we, we're just more connected because the students are not just part of our campus, they're part of the community. The other thing that always blew me away is, um, you know, when I would go come back from Christmas break, you know, you would get off on University Ave off of Highway 101. And there'd be this long road of palm trees, you know, and then you would see, you know, the Memorial Church at the end. But it was definitely there was a barrier between the campus and uh, the rest of the world. Berkeley, similarly, um, you know, it was more integrated. I mean, especially next to Telegraph. San Francisco State is fluid. I mean, you see the same folks on campus that you see off, co- you know, campus. The, 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 you know, the mall is just up the street. You know, I think. I think the only difference is maybe there's more kids in the mall than on campus, but we have kids on on campus too. So we are we are just more real world, and so um, and, but how can we become more socially relevant? I think we we um, need to really embrace this idea of anchor institutions. And anchor institutions, that idea came after Hurricane Katrina, where it was really clear that there weren't institutions in place that that like knew the community well enough to be able to make decisions in a strategic way that were going to be trusted. They were going to be trusted. And so what I have noticed at San Francisco State is when I go out to eat, 
when well, miss those days. But anyway, um, invariably, the person that was serving dinner was a San Francisco State either student, alum, or knew somebody who was an alum. You know, I always say we're the target. We're the target of, of higher education, and UCSF is Bloomingdale's. You know, everybody goes into Target. Not that many people know Bloomingdale's. You don't always trust Target, but, you know, you at least you understand Target. And so I think that um, really embracing the fact that we have those connections with our communities and then building infrastructure around it so that we are the individuals that folks go to when they want to better address the concerns of our communities with regard to the vaccine. You know, they'll listen to their kids and their kids are at our university, right? And our kids, you know, I'm saying kids, I'm into our students, they'll listen to our students and our, you know, and the students are their kids, their nephews, their, their grandkids. And so I think we can really take advantage of those linkages to um, better disseminate some of the knowledges and skills that are gained in the CSU within the communities where they are, can provide the great, greatest benefit. You know, you mentioned Bloomingdale's. My mother uh, would tell me stories that only on very, very special days would my late grandmother and her, this was in the, uh, the early to mid-1950s, would take the, uh, the bus because uh, they lived in El Sereno, East L.A., uh-huh. and would take the, uh, yeah, the bus over to downtown where they had a, uh, a Bloomingdale's. Mm-hmm. And they might do that maybe once a year. Mm-hmm. And they would all dress up. You know, that was in the days when people would all dress up to go just shopping. And my mom still remembers, you know, they'd have their hats on and their nice, almost like Sunday clothes. Mm-hmm. And it was like that one day out of the year where instead of going to, you know, some, you know, close place in East LA to get clothes, they'd go out there. And it was like a huge treat to actually go into a store, you know, they looked a little different than the majority of people, but it was like a a big day for them. And they'd spend like that day, you know, shopping downtown as if it was like, like Christmas or, or something like that. But see, the thing is, 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 as much as I make that analogy, I mean, Bloomingdale's needs to be open to everybody too. Yes, and it, to be open yeah, to everybody too. Yeah, and it and it wasn't in 1955. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you know the build program. Uh, you know this. You know the question I have for you here: How would you like to see greater engagement with, you know, this 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 really outdated master plan? You know, the UCs, the Cal States, and the community colleges. Um, and why is it important to you? in order to engage with these other institutions? And how could it better serve San Francisco States and the CSU's STEM students going forward? Well, first of all, we got to get rid of the master plan. Master is definitely got to just get out of there. <laughs> um, it's, just a, it's just a plan. You know, we don't need, to, we don't need any masters. Um, okay, so having said that, um, you know, I've been a California resident my whole life. So that's 57 years. And, you know, we had a Consumers River College down the street when I grew up. And Consumers River College was the place that my mom took us to learn swimming. And um, it's a place where I took physics because um, I went to an all-girls Catholic high school and they didn't have a physics program. And in order to, you know, when I was admitted to Stanford, but they saw that I didn't have a physics class. So that's where I took my physics class. 
it was physics for mechanics. And I learned actually some very practical things that, um, anyway, it doesn't matter. So I learned that the Consumers River College was just down the street and it was a place that could be for me and for others like me who maybe didn't have access to pools for, you know, and to physics classes because we were at all girls Catholic high school. So um, that was wonderful. And I know that we have a community college policy where if you complete your programming there, you can go into the CSU directly. So there's a direct link. Um, and I think that that's important because I think of the community colleges is really connected to the community and then coming into the CSU. CSU, obviously, our primary, um, well, the way I think our primary objective is to create the workforce of California. And uh, that sounds so unspectacular, but um, workers are essential. Scholars, not so much. <laughs> I stay in my house all day because I'm not an essential worker. The workers that they're, they're out there because they're important. They're the ones that actually are responsible for those things that we essentially that are needed essentially. So um, I think of it as a really um, important role that we play. And um, we're needed at all levels, you know, the different skill sets. And so it's important that we connect with the, with the UCs in order to generate the, you know, the, see, but we can do that too. But anyway, the innovation, the creativity, the, the, all that sort of thing. Um, and so I think what's needed is to better connect CSU to UC in the same way that city college is connected to cities, you know, to CSU. You do well in the CSU you automatically get admitted to a PhD program in the UC. That makes total sense to me. I think um, those that don't like that idea uh, are still stuck in the, you know, the, the feeling that um, we need to make sure that there's a national and international competition for our PhD or, or for our doctoral programs. And, and I get the rationale that that somehow leads to the better candidate, but what is best for California? What's best for California is that we grow and retain and promote our own. That's what's best for California. And it's taxpayer dollars that are responsible for these systems. And it's a stunt in the cabeza that the kids of the taxpayer, you know, taxpayers don't get the advantage of going through the system. You know, instead we're, you know, I don't know. It just like, just, this is the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night. I hear the Silicon Valley is trying to recruit more H1 visa holders to fill the slots there. And I understand, I understand that there's the, under, the belief that if you get the top 1% of a particular country to come to the United States and be part of our, you know, our, our Silicon Valley uh, industries, that that's going to elevate. But there's always going to have to be the the formatting of these individuals to be Californians <laughs> and to care about Californians. I mean, that's a cost. But if you're coming from us and you're going through us, then you're going to be part of us. And I think um, that's why it's the insider piece. Uh, and we can do that, I think, seamlessly. And, and prioritize uh, Californians in our educational system for Californians, by, with, for. Letty, our clock is winding down, and very apropos, we have a final question for you. 
if you could turn back the clock, your clock, all of our clocks, and talk to your 18-year-old self again, what would you tell her? I would tell her to always follow her intuition. So I have had many crossroads where I've been told by others that my thinking was wrong and that I needed to change course. Fortunately, most of the time I followed my intuition, but there's a couple of times where I haven't and I lament it. Um, For example, I went into science to give back and I was told by an advisor at Stanford that uh, I should engage in research that was not tainted by social constructs that I should engage in research that didn't have any political overtones. I should engage in research that was pure, you know, worthy of the ivory tower. And I don't know that I regret having listened to the advice because I really learned rigorous scientific uh, concepts and tools and methods, which really have now allowed me to use those in the service of community-engaged transdisciplinary research. But as is the case with many things, I followed my intuition on that one. You know, I I thought to myself, you know, why am I continuing to work in this field? And yeah, I'm getting publications. Yeah, I have some grants. But, you know, what do I need to do in order to really feel that I filled my time here in a way that was meaningful? You know, that really changed things for the better, especially for those individuals that I care most about, which are those individuals that... um, have promoted me when others told, you know, others said that I was never, that wasn't good enough, that I wasn't worthy enough. So I would tell myself, listen to your intuition. Well, Letty, uh, I'm glad you uh, listened more so to your intuition than anyone else in your past. And you certainly are, uh, at least to this person, somebody to look up to. And uh, we're pretty close in age. I'm probably a few months younger than you, uh, but I'll be 57 and in about four months. And, uh, and I too attended a, a Catholic high school. So oh, I really? think our, yeah, so I think our, <laughs> our, our tracks are, 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 are pretty parallel in that. So I'd like to. And I don't thank. think of you, I think of you as a peer, I can't, you know, I, I look to you for leadership as well. And so, um, yeah, I'm not so much into the hierarchy. That's sort of a colonial kind of thing. I'm much more about decolonize. We're all in this together. Let's work together. And so thank you for your efforts around this. I, I know that this is the inaugural um, uh, spot, but I'm sure you're going to be capturing a lot of really important voices that really could make um, a difference, could really change things in the CSU, provided that folks listen. Well, it's great to have you as the first one. You know, the Greeks never had obituaries. They would pretty much ask when they were burying somebody, uh, did he have passion? And certainly that you certainly have passion. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I applaud that. Embrace your passion, especially when it comes to science that can make a difference. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Well, that's all for today's episode of All Things STEM. Thank you for listening. And of course, many thanks to Dr. Leticia or to her friends, Leti. I think everybody's her friend, Marquez Magana, for speaking with me today and to all of you for being here. Join us again next time 
Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify so you never miss an episode. May you have a great day and a safe day, and we'll see you again. Thank you.